God bless you guys. You can be seated and our good brother Lee England is going to read our text tonight. From the Gospel according to St. John, uh, chapter 21, the last chapter, uh, Jesus has been crucified, he has been raised, and now he's at the Sea of Tiberias, or Sea of Galilee, and he's with his disciples, and they've, they've eaten. When Jesus and his disciples had finished eating, he asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than the others do? Or another translation, more than you love these things. Simon Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, said Jesus. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus told him. Jesus asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him three times if he loved him. So he told Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus replied, feed my sheep. I tell you, he said, for certain that when you were a young man, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go, but when you are old, you will hold out your hands then others will wrap your belt around you and lead you where you don't want to go Jesus said this to tell how Peter would die and bring honor to God then he said to Peter follow me Peter turned and saw Jesus favorite disciple following them he was the same one who had sat next to Jesus at the meal and had asked, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw that disciple, he asked Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, what is it to you if I want to, him to live until I return? You must follow me. The gospel. All right, I just made a decision. Lee's going to read all the scripture from now on. <laughs> Let's tell Lee Anglin how much we love him. I don't know why I used to think of Jesus' disciples, the inner group. Some call them the 12. I always feel funny called them the 12 because of Judas. But that group of a baker's dozen or a dozen fellows who surrounded Jesus, I always looked at them subconsciously as a 
spiritually elite group. Um, a group of people he had handpicked because of their special skills, their supernatural powers, their, uh, their high spiritual IQ. They were like a special forces team, a, a special ops group spiritually, a, a bunch of standouts. And I don't know why I thought that. I knew better. There really is nothing in the Gospels that portray them that way at all. Story after story indicates that they were pretty much bell curve, average kind of folk, not a lot worse, not a lot better than the rest of us. They struggled with the same stuff we do. As individuals, they struggled, and in that little sociology, that little social network of 12, they struggled there as well. One thing that's really clear about them, and the text that Lee just read indicates this, but one thing that's really clear in terms of a struggle for them, this little community of a dozen members, is they seem to struggle a lot with unhealthy comparison, unhealthy comparing, competition. The stories are more than the ones that I'll mention, but they are replete all the way through the gospel text. In Mark 9, it's really a fascinating story in Mark 9, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up into a high mountain, and in that high place, he was transfigured. You remember the story. And he was transfigured there, and he saw, oh, did I dismiss the kids? Oh, man, I threw, the, threw this all off. Kids, you can be just, I think they're dismissing themselves, but the kids can be dismissed. God bless you guys. I thought the crowd looked a little better. No. Sorry, gang. Higgins is waiting on his kids. So, so Mark 9, Jesus is up on the mountain. He's transfigured, he glows, it's a, it's a phenomenal story. Moses and Elijah come back to life and visit with him and encourage him. Peter, James, and John are there with him. When they come down the mountain from that supernal experience, they immediately are met by a group of people who are arguing. Um, and Jesus is immediately brought into the argument with Peter, James, and John, and there was quite a row when they got to the bottom of what was going on, there was a man who had a very ill son. And the boy was so ill that the man in desperation had come to Jesus looking for Jesus, and he had found the nine disciples that didn't go up on the mount. And he had asked them to heal his son. And they couldn't. And so the man was now lamenting this to Jesus and Jesus told him that if he would only believe that he could do this for him. And the man made that classic, beautiful statement, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And as I've often said, Jesus never requires perfect faith, but honest faith works just fine. And whereas many religious settings, the admission of faith lacking would send you to the back of the line, Jesus looked at the guy and said, that'll do just fine. I can work with that. And the man's son was summarily healed. So you have this phenomenal story of the transfiguration and then the healing of the man's son. And then the disciples and Jesus embark, uh, heading back home to Capernaum. 
And when they get to Capernaum, Jesus goes into uh, the house. And as the disciples are settling in, Jesus looks at them and he asks this question. What were you guys arguing about along the way? That's a great question. Talk about the questions of Jesus. What were you arguing about along the way? That's a good question for us tonight. What are the things, the trivialities, the minutia, the silly stuff? I suppose there are some things that need to be argued about, but more often than not, we get lost in drivel and unimportant matters. Jesus said, I overheard you guys arguing and he acted as though he couldn't make out what they were saying. And he said, what, what was it that you were arguing about? And the Bible says that they were immediately embarrassed because they were arguing amongst themselves about which one of them was the greatest. And, you know, sometimes you, you almost feel like Jesus set them up for it a little bit um, because there was this inner core. You know, th these guys were called out from the crowd and then... Amongst the 12, there was these three that were always kind of having special privilege with Jesus. You can almost feel the tension, you know, when Jesus says, I'm about to go up on the mountain, and I want you and you and you. And it's the you, you, and you, Sid, that he always picks. And the other nine are like, you know, what are we, chop liver? Why don't we ever get invited? And then to compound the issue, the three elite go up and they have that supernal experience. And when they come down, the nine have failed. I mean, you can almost feel when Jesus asks what's wrong and the guy says, these nine, they couldn't help me. You wonder if there wasn't this sense of the three looking at the nine saying, well, if we would have been here, of course, these, you know, these guys are kind of the second tier for whatever the reasons that's just a surmisal but for whatever the reasons they felt the tension and they were arguing who amongst them was the greatest another setting that's even more uncanny was in Luke 22 on the eve of Jesus crucifixion He's sitting at the table with the 12, and there's this moment filled with pathos when he says, my betrayer's sitting here at the table with me. It's a, it's a really stunning moment. My betrayer is sitting here at the table, and it was this group, this group that he had walked with for three and a half years that he had hand-selected, and amongst his friends, the interesting thing about the story is, you know, we, we always kind of paint Judas in our mind to have the guy with the budding horns and kind of the sulfurous breath, and, but he probably wasn't that at all. As a matter of fact, he, he probably was um, the opposite of that because he was the treasurer of the group. So when the group were first discussing who would do what, he was so trustworthy in their mind that they looked and said, well, Judas would be a great choice to take care of the money. So he wasn't the obvious choice to be the betrayer. And there's nothing about the text that says that 
you know, 11 guys all turned and looked at Judas. As a matter of fact, they were pretty wise because each of them looked at themselves and said, is it, is it I? Every one of them saw the capacity in themselves to be that person. And finally, uh, Peter looked at John because John, interesting, John was called the favorite disciple. He often referred to himself in his gospel as the disciple Jesus loved. And a lot of people translate that Greek phrase, the favorite one. And this plays out in Luke because the Bible says John was leaning against Jesus. He was the closest one. And when Jesus said, my betrayer is sitting here, Simon Peter, who was one of the inner three, looked at John and said, ask him who it is. Peter wouldn't even ask him. John was able to lean close and say, who is it? And Jesus said, the one that I dip and give to. So, so in that moment, there's a favorite and... There's an inner three, and there's a betrayer, and they're trying to figure out who the worst one is, and then the awful moment when Judas is sent, commissioned to the betrayal, and Jesus sends him out with the bread fresh in his mouth and the wine. And as they're sitting there in that moment, wrapping their mind around how their treasurer and their friend is now the quizzling who sold them down the river. The Bible says immediately they begin to murmur and argue, Tommy, amongst themselves about which one of them was the greatest. Holy mackerel. How do you do that there? At another time, the Bible says that James and John's mother came to Jesus and tried to work a special deal for her boys and said, one of these days when you really come to where you're going, when you drop Rome to its knees and set up your empire, could one of my boys be your vice president and the other one be your secretary of state? One of the gospels, actually the gospel of John Interestingly, says James and John asked Jesus that directly. The other gospels say that their mother did that. So it's interesting to me. The other gospel writers say, you remember how his mom did that? John was so embarrassed that his mom did that. He said, that was, I did it. I'm, I'm the one that asked for that. Because the only thing worse than asking for it yourself is your mom asking it for you, right? And then there's the other story in John 13. Again, they're coming down the home stretch to the Passion Week, and <clears throat> Jesus looks at his disciples and said, I need to tell you that the Son of Man is about to be betrayed, and, and you're all going to deny me. And that, that's a poignant moment. You're all going to betray, turn tail and run. And Simon Peter spoke up, and it would have been one thing if he would have said, you know what, no, I won't. I'm not going to. But he didn't say just that. He spoke up and said, no, I will never deny you. And then he had the audacity to turn around and say, though all of these will. It was like he looked at Jesus and was like, you know, I, I'm with you. I can totally see how these guys could do that. But not me. I, I, what do they feel like? I mean, they've got to be rolling their eyes at this guy. Three times he looked at Jesus and said, 
Not me. I, I will never deny you. But these guys will. And then he denied. The crucifixion happens, the resurrection happens, and Jesus, six or seven times in a 40-day period, appeared to the 11 disciples. The third time he appeared to them in sequence was in John 21, and it's the text that Lee read. They're in the boat, and they're fishing, and they're not catching anything, and a man on the shore, they're about 100 yards off the shore, man on the shore hollers and says, put your net on the other side, and they don't realize it's Jesus, so they do it, and when they pull the net back in, it's really an interesting text in John, John's gospel says there were 153 large fish. Isn't that interesting? I mean, who's counting? 153 large fish were in the net. And as they were pulling the net in, they realized John, verse 7 of uh, chapter 21, Ron, uh, Lee didn't read this, but verse 7 again refers to John. He refers to himself by saying, and the favorite disciple noticed that it was Jesus and told Peter. And when Peter saw that, the Bible says Peter put on the clothes that he'd taken off to fish and he jumped in the water and he swam. And when he got to the seashore... There was a fire, and there was already some fish cooking and some bread and some, some charcoal, the text says, and Jesus was simply kneeling there. Again, a profound moment. And I can almost see Jesus flip the fish, and he doesn't even look up, and he stokes the fire, and he said, Simon, son of John, and it stabs him. Because Simon was who he was when Jesus found him, and then Jesus changed his name in an illustrious moment and said, you're not Simon anymore, you're Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail, and whatever you bind will be bound, and whatever you loose will be loosed. And all of that power Peter had accrued, and that name meant rock. And now, after all that time, Jesus stokes the fire and whispers, Simon, and Simon's heart breaks, and Jesus said, Lovest thou me more than these? And I, I really do think uh, that what Jesus was saying, it makes sense in the context because the Bible says there were six or seven of the other disciples that had now joined them on the shore, and as those six or seven disciples, the very people that Jesus and Peter was standing by a few weeks before when Peter said, Though all of these will deny you, I won't. And now... Peter is there with that same group, and Jesus said, Simon, do you really love me more than these guys do? And Simon said, yes, you know I do. Simon, do you love me? This time he leaves off the others. Do you love me? Yes. Simon, yes, Lord, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know everything. Well, Simon, when you were a young man, you kind of did it the way you wanted to do it, and you went where you wanted to go, and you got it the way you wanted it. One of these days, you're going to get old, and you're going to be girded by another, and you're going to be taken. And he literally was speaking of the martyred death that Peter would one day die. So again, a moment filled with pathos. There's a lot of emotion here. It's a poignant moment. The three lovest thou me's, a resurrection appearance, and now he's prognosticating your martyrdom. 
It's a moment just to be silent. It's a moment to be contemplative. It's a moment to be prayerful. It's a moment to do anything other than what he did. As he savors those words, Jesus concludes by saying, you're going to to die this death, but follow me. And Peter, in that moment, as it The gravity of that hits him. He cannot hold that space. It's too much for him. And the Bible says that he looked around. And the first words out of his mouth in response to those words, he looked around and he saw, John's gospel said, he saw Jesus' favorite disciple. And when he saw John, he looked back at Jesus and he said, Well, what about him? What's going to happen to him? Is is he going to die a death like that? How's it going to go for him? Am I the only one? I mean, this is the same guy that years before had looked at Jesus and said, Hey, the guys and I have been talking. We have left everything to follow you, and it doesn't seem to be paying off yet. And Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, nobody's ever left anything for me but what they won't be repaid a hundredfold in this life and the life to come. And Simon was like, okay, well, we need to start seeing some dividends pretty quickly here. He's a thick-headed guy. And he says, what about him, Lord? And Jesus responds with the question that we're focusing on tonight. Jesus responded, If I want him to live forever, if I want him to live until I return, here it is, what is that to you? What's it got to do with you? What does my deal with him have to do with you? If I want him to live until I return, tell me how that impacts you And has anything to do or any weight to bring to the the story that I just told you about your life? What is it to you, Simon? What happens to John? And the question is a really good one, and it's one that we would do well to answer. And that question is simply, do we measure Do we measure our deal? Do we measure our lives? Do we measure our success by comparing ourselves to others? Is our deal really not satisfying or unsatisfying until we find out the deal that our neighbor has? Do we feel really good about the Hyundai Sonata we bought until our neighbor pulls up in their new Cadillac Escalade? Sorry if anybody has a Hyundai Sonata, it's a fine car. Do we measure our lives and our success ultimately and finally juxtaposed against someone else? Jesus talked about this thing a good bit. In Matthew 20, he told the story of a guy who owned a vineyard, and one day he needed workers for his vineyard, and he went and he found some fellas about 6 o'clock in the morning, and he told them, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a denarius, a, a, a common worker's wage, normal wage for the day, if you'll work for me from six to six. And the guy says, sound like a good deal to us. 
And they headed to the field and they started working happy as larks. And about nine o'clock in the morning, the guy who owned the vineyard went and found another group of guys and said, would you come work for me? If you start right now, work till six, I'll pay you a fair wage. They said, sure. He went back at three o'clock, did the same thing, went back at five o'clock, one hour before quitting time, went back and kept bringing in these tiers of people. And the last group, all he said was, I'll pay you a fair wage. So they get to the end of the day and everybody's happy because they've worked. And as he begins paying, he pays the guys who had been there all day long their denarius and they're very happy. But some of you know the story. They're very happy until they put it in their pocket. It was a great deal. Cotton until he brought the other groups up and he looked at the group that had worked one hour and he said, you know, I think it's fair to give you a denarius. And the first group said, hold on. Hold on, this is not fair. What is it about us that wants fair so badly? It is so innate in our survival mechanisms. You go to a preschool playground, you will never hear any kid say, that's not loving. But again and again and again, four-year-olds stomp their feet and say, what? That's not fair. Jesus looked at the guys that had worked all day long and he said, I thought we had a deal. They said, we did. He said, I thought you were happy with it. They said, we were. He said, then what's the problem? They said, they're the problem. No, you're the problem. They said to the owner of the vineyard, you're the problem. You didn't have to pay us more than a denarius, but they shouldn't have got as much. And if they're going to get a denarius, then we should have gotten more. The problem is, is the inequity and the amount of time worked and the pay. And Jesus said something incredibly provocative. He said, why would you be angry at my generosity and their good fortune? If you would have come at five o'clock and been one of them, do you think you would have been crying foul in equity? It's really not fairness that you want, it's fairness for you. But it's a provocative question. Why would you be angry at my generosity and why would you be angry at their good fortune? The insight in the story is clear. We have such a tendency to assess our well-being relative to our perception of other people's. And just like the laborers, we make assumptions that we really don't have grounds to make because immediately the ones who had worked all day long, they were very clear in their mind. And man, this is relative in a society like ours. The guys who had worked all day long made it very clear we have been treated unfairly the problem wasn't the amount we were paid, but the fact that we didn't get paid more than those guys. It's unfair. They've gotten away with something. Their assumption was, we worked all day long because we're industrious, and they worked one hour because they're lazy. That's the assumption, right? 
But the question begs, who said they were lazy? You assume they're lazy. Well, yeah, that's what it means. If they're not working, they've got to be lazy. Jesus said, no, actually they were standing in an unemployment line worrying themselves sick about how they were going to take care of their family when I walked up to them. I actually came up to them and said, guys, why aren't you working? And not one of them said, because we don't want to. We figured out a way around things. Jesus said when I got there, they were hurting, they were nervous, and they said, because nobody's asked us. And he said, would you like to work? And they said, we sure would. It, this really smacks. Again, it's something Jesus talks about a lot, this competitive comparing thing. He told the story of the two sons, the elder brother and the prodigal brother. It's a really profound story that culminates in the elder brother sitting up on the hill pouting until the father goes looking for him and says, son, why aren't you at your younger brother's party? We're celebrating the fact that he's come home. And the elder brother doesn't say, you know what, you should have never thrown a party for him. The elder brother says, I'm not really arguing the party for him, but here's my problem, dad. You've never thrown a party for me. Wouldn't mind it so bad. Throw a party for him. The interesting thing is, the story seems to imply that the kid had never been angry that he didn't have a party thrown for him until he saw a party thrown for somebody else. And then all of a sudden, it mattered. It wasn't the absence of a party in his life only. It was the presence of the party in another person's life. The father said, son... Everything I've ever had is yours. Your whole life has been a party. And the elder brother looked back at him and said, I've been here slaving for you my whole life. Two slaves in the story. The prodigal went off in the far country and became a slave. Guess who else was a slave? The kid that sat on the front row of the church, never missed a Sunday school class, and never did anything debauched. But comparing and competitiveness, it has so much built-in assuming. So many assumptions are built in. Because the prodigal or the elder brother looked at the father and said, I've been here slaving for you. And I want to tell you what your younger son, he hasn't even talked to the kid. I want to tell you what he's been doing. He's been out there with prostitutes and spending his money on riotous living. Been really interesting. The father would have been a good psychologist at this point if he would have looked at the older brother and said, prostitutes? I don't remember anybody saying anything about prostitutes. Where'd that come from? Oh, well, I just assumed. The point was the elder brother stayed home but went to the far country in his mind. He assumed that the prodigal had gotten away with something. He assumed that the prodigal had now gotten the best of both worlds. He had lived a debauched life and had all of that fun, and now he's come back here, he's getting his cake and he's eating it too. When the reality is the story that the elder brother built in his mind about the prodigal was completely untrue. The boy was wasting away and starving. Assumptions. The reality is the elder brother the elder brother's heart was in the far country, and the prodigal son's heart was at home, longing for home. 
Oh, how we misjudge one another, misunderstand one another. In his uh, hit TV show, Louie, the uh, controversial comedian, Louis C.K., you might remember this episode if you watched Louie. He had a two-minute interaction with his little six-year-old girl. He's a single dad in this show, Louie, a comedian's kind of about his own life, kind of a Larry David kind of thing. And Louie has made a mango pop for his 11-year-old daughter. And then the six-year-old daughter comes in and says, I want a mango pop. And Louie says to her, there is no more mango. And she said, well, that's not fair. Or without the ability to say, oh, she said, that's not fair. And Louie said, well, life's not fair. And she said, but that's not fair. And he said, well, your sister's lucky and you're not so lucky right now. Welcome to life. And the little girl continues to repeat, that is not fair. That is not fair. And she will not give up until finally he says, honey, there's no more mango. She says, then I want something else. I got to get something else. And he says, you're not going to get anything. Just deal with it. She hits him with one final barrage. And he gets down beside her and he says something I will never forget. He said, honey, the only time you should look in your neighbor's bowl is to make sure they have enough. You should never look in their bowl to see if you have as much as them. Let that sink in for a minute. I I like to vary that just a little bit. The only time you should look in your neighbor's bowl is to make sure they have enough. You should never look in their bowl to see if you have enough. You can't look at anybody else's deal to see if you have enough. You can't look at anybody else's clothes or car or body or relationships to see if you have enough. At some point, you have to realize whether you're downward comparing or upward comparing, whether you're comparing yourself to people that you perceive as worse off than yourself to make yourself somehow have an ego boost or whether you're looking at people above yourself and The inequity of comparing is so ridiculous because when I'm upward comparing, I'm generally comparing the things that I know worst about myself with the things that I perceive as best about them. And when I'm downward comparing, I'm generally, as George W. Bush said uh, a year or so ago in in an incredible speech, in that moment of, of, of upward comparing, we generally, 